0: Colossians three and verse twenty-two is our text for it this morning. Continuing our study, verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Colossians, verse twenty-two continues his discussion about household duties. Or, as one preacher said, uh, in in this greater context, verses uh, eighteen to to uh, chapter one, verse chapter four, verse one, that a new man makes a new home. The new man who we are in Christ. How ought a Christian? Household look, what should be the characteristics of it? We've seen that in relation to wives to husbands, husband to wives, children to parents, fathers specifically to children. And now we're looking at slaves and we think, slaves? What are we talking about slaves for? From the earliest time in human history, and I didn't notice I didn't say prehistoric because there's no prehistoric time. If you want to talk about prehistory, it's eternity. It is outside of time, but everything from the very beginning right Genesis one one says in the beginning that 's the beginning of time God created the heavens and the earth, and so there is the beginning of history, and that history is recorded for us a lot of it here in the scriptures. anyway, we see very at the very beginning of history how slavery was practiced, not mean it was not endorsed necessarily by God, but just because we live in a fallen cursed world, we see how different economic structures have come into being, how the difficulties, the, as God said in in Genesis 3, the curse upon Adam, and by the sweat of your brow you will labor, and the ground is going to issue forth thorns and thistles, and it's going to be bad. It's good for Eeyore, right? Donkeys like thistles, but but not for people. It's it's bad stuff. And through all the difficulties, the distresses, the disappointments, you plant a crop and you don't get to harvest it, well, you're not going to eat. You're not going to have enough to go around. Issues of slavery then arose, and by the time of the patriarchs, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a corollary to him, to them, is Job. Probably, we don't have exactly an idea when Job was established, but throughout Job, he talks about servants. The book of Job, I say, he talked about servants and slaves. We see in relation to Abram uh, and Abraham, the same guy, different names, of course, talked about. Servants born in his house, he had three hundred eighteen, I think it was at one time went to fight on behalf of his nephew Lot when they went to go and restore uh, the people from being captured by other stuff anyway he had these trained men and born in his household who were part of his household. These were not uh, family members in the sense of you know biological children, but they were. Men attached to Abraham and cared for by him. They were slaves in some sense, and yet also were trusted and intimate. Um not members of the household. By the time, well, throughout that, hum, that that biblical history, we see how slavery rises and falls with various things. This, of course, this Paul, this letter from Paul to the Colossian church is written in the first century AD. This is the time of the Roman Empire, and Rome had a whole civilization based upon slavery. There was one Roman uh, senator, historian, uh, Seneca, who mentioned uh, in kind of passing, I think, to Emperor Nero, maybe at the time, that there was was a proposal made at a certain time saying that slaves ought to dress in a certain way. They were already, they couldn't wear the toga, they couldn't wear the the aristocratic kind of garb, but let's make them all wear the same uniform. And then they said, wait a minute, if we do that, they will notice and recognize how many of them there are. At that particular time, there may have been up to 20% of the population of Rome were slaves, were forced laborers. And they said, we don't want that. Uh, it was in the first century B.C., if you remember Spartacus. You've seen the movie, the documentary. It's, it's loosely based on history, but it talked about a slave revolt. So slave revolts were were prevalent in that time period, and the, the crushing of them, the your thumb down on, on those revolts. Paul addresses this thing because slavery was part of the Roman Empire. He is in Rome, by the way, uh, imprisoned, having been there for two years or so uh, under house arrest. And he says slavery being part of the Roman household needs to be addressed here. We're talking about husbands, wives, very important, the parents, children, but also how do slaves interact with one another. And I think it was specifically on his head on his mind, excuse me, that he wanted to address slavery. He does it also in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter six, but here he he, he talks more about slaves than he did about wives. About husbands, about children, and fathers. He talks more about slaves here in verses 22 and to the end of the chapter, and then, of course, masters in verse 1 of chapter 4. Why did he do that? A number of reasons, I think, but one, maybe the primary thing, is do you remember Philemon? Do you remember Onesimus? There's another letter that Paul wrote at the time of this letter to the Colossians, and that is Philemon, a very short little book, letter written to a man, Philemon, here, who lived in Colossae, and he was a slave owner, a Christian man, who had a slave named Onesimus, and you can read all about Onesimus, and there's a little play on words with his name. Onesimus is based on a verb to mean uh, to be a benefit to, and Paul uses that in his letter. You can trace that down. But I think because Onesimus ran away from Philemon, from Colossae, all the way to Rome, hundreds of miles away, and somehow, in God's kind providence, found Paul and found Christ, or Christ found him. Onesimus is a believer now, and Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus, the slave, back to you, Master Philemon, for your uh, reunion of your. Your, your brother, your uh, fellow worker, and so forth, you can read about Philemon. I think it's on his mind then. How ought slaves to conduct? Maybe he's thinking especially, hey, Philemon, notice, or excuse me, Onesimus, look at this, what I'm writing to, to the church back in Colossae. You're going to take this, perhaps, back with you when you go back to your master Philemon. Let me read our, the text to get it in our minds as we go forward. And then we'll look at verse 22 specifically. He says, "'Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ.'" Masters, excuse me. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Just here in verse twenty-two, and we'll look at uh, the other verses here as as we. In, in weeks to come. But verse 22, and even this first word, you know, sometimes I get just hung up on words and you say, can't you just move on? Well, you know, slavery is such an important thing and it's very important in our American history. Uh, many people call slavery the the original sin of America, that we were founded based on on slavery. Well, that isn't exactly true and, and we can go into that. But I want to talk about biblical slavery. What is the, what is the uh, evidence? What is the practice of it? Not We're not going to it in too much depth, but it is interesting, as you read in the Mosaic law, that is to say the law that Moses delivered to the people Israel, after the Ten Commandments, which is ex- Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, especially in Exodus, the very first section of of laws has to do with slavery. Exodus 21 he talks about slavery and how how these these uh, slaves how this relationship should go on. If you want to turn there we'll just read a few passages and it's helpful even in that context to regard what are slaves to to the masters. What how ought they to regard their identity and how ought the masters relate to them? Exodus 21 speaks about this laws about slaves. And he says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, well, this indicates that bought, slaves can be bought and sold. He shall serve for six years, but to the uh, seventh, or in the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. Okay, so there is a limitation on this. It's interesting how God acknowledges the practice of slavery, but he says, at the end of six years, you let him free. So, enough of this stuff. You, you let him free. You bought this Hebrew brother, a slave. And then it says, if he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's a husband of the wife, his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and you can read all these things, God is legislating how ought masters relate to slaves, how ought slaves conduct their business before God. If you notice down in verse uh, twenty and twenty-one, verses twenty, to twenty-one in, in Exodus twenty-one, we see if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall surely be, he shall surely be punished. But if for a day or two he is able to stand. Uh, no punishment should be taken. And notice this phrase, for he is his property. We often talk about chattel, C-H-A-T-T-E-L, chattel slavery. That is to say that, that uh, slaves are no more than a tool, a, like a hammer or a cart or a horse even. Uh, that's not exactly true. God is protecting the identity, the honor, the integrity of the person, even by those opening uh, rules and legislations. But here he says, this slave is your property. Maybe your translation has a different word. The root word there, or the, the, the Hebrew word there, is silver, or money. He is your money. He's your silver. He's your, your wealth, evidenced in these slaves. Remember Job, He his household was characterized by lots of livestock, lots of children, lots of slaves, even in his household. It wasn't an unrighteous behavior, unrighteous activity. I'm sure he was very kind to him. Paul will talk about masters in relation to slaves. But here the the concept is slavery does have a sense where you are your master's property. You are under that master's, that Lord's control and concern and responsibility. It doesn't mean that that master can misuse you. Paul says in verse 1, of course, do to others, essentially do to others as you'd have them do to you. Uh, Not the word the kind of controverted commandment, uh, do to others before they do unto you. Make sure you get your your get in before they get to you. No. You lay down your life. You serve. You think, remember you have a master in heaven yourself and he will give the inherit- the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. This idea of slavery is old. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not an American phenomenon. It's not even ultimately uh, a, a racial phenomenon. Maybe had that connotation here in America over the last, uh, it's beginning in the 1600s, but but it, in, the Bib- in the Bible, in the biblical record, in, in Throughout history, it hasn't been based on uh, color of your skin or, or what country you're from. It's based on various other situations. In fact, perhaps the, the most significant way that slaves came into the possession of somebody else is through warfare, through conflict, through uh, conquest even. There is a beautiful story, and you can turn to it again, Second Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5 is where the uh, uh, remarkable... Uh, happening goes on. Of course, it's in the larger context of a healing that uh, God is going to accomplish on a, a Syrian general, Naaman, Naaman is the guy's name. But it's interesting how the whole healing episode happened because of a Hebrew slave girl that was working in Naaman's house and mentioned, oh, I wish that my master, well, I'll just read it, Second Kings 5, Naaman, commander of the army, the king of Aram, was a great man, and his master, Excuse me, some of these letters are jumping around on me. There we go. And highly respected because of him, Yahweh had given salvation to Aram. The man was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now verse 2 says, now the Arameans had gone out in marauding bands. These are warfare and, and taken prisoners and so forth. And had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master, Naaman, were before the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, his master, the king. And you can read the rest of the context. But what is so remarkable about that is this is an enemy kingdom who went in a marauding band. I mean, mean, evil kind of folks. And taking Israelites, Hebrew uh, people, and especially the younger ones, because they will last longer than the old, older people. And this little girl had compassion upon her master this new master Naaman not a gent I mean it was a Gentile guy not a Hebrew guy uh, somebody who had probably killed her parents and just done nasty things and yet her compassion and pity for and love even for for her master uh, was is evidenced here and then of course the story goes on and Naaman even uh, comes to faith comes to submission to Yahweh the God of of, of the Hebrews and uh, it's just a tremendous way that that shows the the sensitivity, not the anger, not the revenge, oh, I wish that you'd curse God and die kind of thing. That's what Job's wife said. But here, this young lady honored God, honored her situation in life, not not vengeful, not, uh, you know, pining away, I wish that you'd just let me go home to my people. No, she's seeking the best interest of her master. She's doing things that are uh, in his, I mean, she's loving him, essentially, right? Seeking the best interest of the object that, that, is, that is loved. And so we see one of the ways that, that slaves come into possession of other people is through conquest, these marauding bands. Another way is through indenture or because they were in financial scrapes. Uh, they were in a difficult situation. Maybe you uh, buy, you, you pay their debt, but now they're, they, uh, they owe you some time. Kind of what's going on with, with Jacob when he goes and, and wants to marry his uh, cousin uh, Rachel, but of course the whole trickery going on there with Laban and Leah and Rachel and all that. But he worked seven years for the one wife, another seven years for the other wife. Don't get married to two women. That was his, uh oh, what a bad thing. But servitude or forced labor, an agreement that, that okay, I'll pay their bride price by my, I'll exchange that for, for my labor. The scripture talks about this. Deuteronomy 15 talks about this, how uh, this ought to go on. Even if the slave at the end of his time the six years, wants to serve you the rest of his life, then you can, there's a procedure that you can, that he can declare his devotion to you. You take a an awl and pierce it through. Ah, you can, Deuteronomy 15, there it is. Paul talks about this. Again, we go from Deuteronomy like 1400 years BC. By the way, I was going to say this. Very important. If you ever read in a lot of different things, and they or watch watch movies, documentaries about the Exodus, when when God, by the way, this is a big thing. God brought Israel out of Egypt because they were slaves in Egypt 400 years, and the giving of the law. the The date of the Exodus is kind of tips the the hat or or reveals the the attitude that people have toward the Scripture. Why do I say that? The date of why does the date of the Exodus matter? Well, because many people, and you can read it. In, in scholarly literature and in books and videos and whatever, that the date of the Exodus is about 1100 BC. 1100 BC. Well, what's the problem with that? Everything is wrong with that. The reason that people say it's 1100 BC is because they think that the the, the Israelites coming in the land ought to be evidenced archaeologically by destruction layers in the cities that that they destroyed. Well destruction layers being like burned timbers and, and weapons and, and uh, covered over treasure and things that, that normally you'd not let that stuff be, be, uh, be buried well, that's wrong, that's wrong thinking. That's not what they did when they came into Israel. They did not destroy and burn every town. They destroyed a handful. In fact, they destroyed Jericho. Remember that whole thing? Joshua um, 7, 8, somewhere in there, earlier, early parts in Joshua. And they destroyed uh, Ai. They destroyed uh, towns in the south. They destroyed Hazor up in the north. I mean, burned down to the ground. But the other cities, God said, hey, you were going to come in to cities you did not build, houses you did not build, vineyards you did not plant, and you're going to just make yourselves a home. They didn't burn everything. So by looking for a destruction layer, which they did find in the 1100s, 1200s BC, they said, oh, that's when the Israelites came in. By the way, they're just a peasant revolt. Nothing, this supernatural uh, signs that God was doing, the the river turned to blood and the frogs and the flies and the gnats. No, nothing like that. It was just a peasant revolt. They're coming out of Egypt. No. This is anti-supernatural, false reading of the scriptures. My point is, if you see something that says 1200 BC, Exodus, don't believe it. It's 1446 or 1445, but it's 400 years after uh, Jacob and his family came down into Egypt. All that to say is God brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves 400 years, and now God brought them out. And because you were slaves in Egypt, you remember how, ought you, how you ought to show kindness to other people. You didn't like being mistreated. You didn't like being beaten and, and enslaved all that time. You didn't like all that that forced labor. So you be mindful how you treat one another. You be mindful how you treat other people as you go in. You're going to be st- destroying these other nations, these Canaanite nations. One of the, of course, that they didn't destroy was the Gibeonites. You can read all about that in Joshua. But they became forced laborers, drawers of waters and hewers of wood for all that that time. Much is written about in the Bible about slavery. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. Of course, this is the context of marriage and, and, uh, and divorce and, and these different things that are going on. But he says about slavery um, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 20. He says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were, are able to, if you were able also to become free, rather do that. So he says, look, if you can become free, great. But if you can't, you be the best slave that you can in your present situation. Uh, He who was called while a slave is the Lord's freed man. You ought to regard yourselves as I am free to the Lord. I serve Christ. In fact, that's what we read. We'll see it next time in Colossians 3. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. And you can read other things there in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 20 through 24. Uh, there's no distinction. We read earlier in Colossians 3, there's no distinction distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free man, but Christ is all and in all. God has, through Christ, destroyed all these other uh, distinctions that we could typically place upon ourselves. doesn't mean there are no implications of those distinctions, but as we come to Christ, it doesn't matter that you're a Jew or Gentile. We come to Christ, doesn't matter what your... your um, uh, religious upbringing your social spiritual being your uh, socioeconomic identity is you come to Christ it doesn't destroy the roles that we have doesn't Galatians talks about there's no male or female well there is still husband and wife there are still roles that we play responsibilities we have to play and here he says just because there's no slave or free man doesn't matter what those things hey If you're still a slave, though, you make sure that you obey. In all things, obey your earthly masters, your your human masters. Uh, Paul talks about this elsewhere, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2, he talks about it. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, also talks about the uh, slavery, and he says not just when your masters are Christian guys or, or ladies, but you be subject to your masters with all fear, 1 Peter 2, verse 18, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly or unrighteously. And he, he goes on there. Peter talks about his whole letter, his first letter is about suffering. Hey, if you're in a suffering, disappointing kind of situation as a slave, you be the best slave you can be. You remember that Christ suffered, and he kept entrusting himself to uh, him who judges righteously. Verse 23 says, he says, there are things more important than your your freedom in this life. Hey, if you can be free, do it. But if you can't, you, as the saying goes, I think there's a song, bloom where you're planted. You're in this situation, be like that servant girl back with, with Naaman. You pray for the household. You act in ways that would honor and, and show esteem for those who are your earthly masters. Here, coming back into to slavery, a source of slaves is by conquest, so warfare, people being taken uh, in, in, uh, in battle and being, becoming the forced laborers of different folks through indenture or through debt, the difficulties that are, are faced there, uh, through kidnapping, Not through kidnapping. Actually, that is a restriction upon the obtaining of slaves. Don't you go and kidnap. Now, what is interesting about that is that, and I I don't have time to belabor it too much. You think you've already belabored it so much. I feel oppressed. Um, That Joseph, Joseph, son of Jacob, he was sold into slavery. But wait a minute. Who sold him? His brothers did. Was it because Joseph owed a debt? No, it's because they hated him. He spoke negative things about us. The whole thing, you can read all about that. How did Joseph perceive his, his, the process by which he became a slave? In some regards, he says, I was sold into slavery. But in Genesis 40 and verse 15, when he's talking to other people about his situation, he says, I was in fact stolen from the land of the Hebrews. Stolen is this word that uh, us, us were translated as kidnapped. I was taken. I was snatched away. Uh, Exodus 21 and verse 16 says he who steals or kidnaps a man whether he sells him to whether he sells him or is found in his hand shall surely be put to death if Joseph regards his his slavery as be, as a result of being stolen then all of his brothers Reuben and the whole lot of them ought to be put to death now of course that happened before the giving of the law so the, you know this Exodus 21 and verse 16 was not in force at that time but the point is they were guilty they did what was evil. They lied to their father. They deceived him, which is was bad. Bad news. The idea of kidnapping is also mentioned in First Timothy, First Timothy chapter one and verse ten. Uh, the law is not made for good people, but for kidnappers, those who steal people, and even in Revelation 18 talks about those who trade human souls, human lives. So kidnapping is not, not a good way. You don't just take people. By the way, we're coming up upon an international holiday. And now you think, which one is that? St. Patrick's Day, where everybody's Irish for at least one day. Do you know St. Patrick wasn't Irish? I mean, what? Destroy my world in one moment. No, Patrick was not Irish. He's British. English. Welsh, but he was taken as a slave to Ireland, and that's, and he was saved in the course of, of escaped, of course, saved and went back to Ireland and was an agent of God's miraculous redemption of that land out of darkness, out of just pagan whatever. And Patrick was so powerful, showing compassion even upon his his uh, uh, enslaving a nation. Paul says here, slaves in all things obey very similar to what God, what Paul said to the children back in verse, um, whatever verse it was, when he said, children, obey your parents in all things, for it's fitting or pleasing to the Lord. Here he says, in all things, obey. In other words, there aren't very many things where you should disobey, which is to say, just obey, obey what they want you to do, go draw the water, do this, clean this, do that. Did you know slaves, especially in the first century, you could find them in pretty much every tier of. Of society, they were doctors, physicians, lawyers. They were accountants. They were cooks. They were clothing um, uh, seamstresses. They or seamsters is that how the guy? I don't know. You figure that up. Uh, they were teachers. They were tutors. They were, of course, the the agricultural workers. They were the, the drawers of water. They were. I mean, just any any place in society. And so to to say that you obey those who are your matters, your masters, according to the flesh, you do what they want you to do. You fulfill their orders. They say jump. You say how high. You say how often, how much, how when can I? When should you don't ask when should I stop? You just keep doing it. You serve them. You seek their best interest. You lay down your life for the sake of your master. This word master is the word Lord, and he has to qualify here. He says, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, because he's going to say in a moment, you serve Christ, you serve Christ the Lord, but here you still have lords on earth. You still have masters to whom you are bound. You serve them. He says here at the end of the verse, uh, puts up a contrast, Uh, obey your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but, so it's not this way, but this way. This way over here, not with this way, is how you would normally want to do it. You would make out your life in such a way that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm serving, I'm obeying my master, you know, uh, as long as he's looking at me, or, or at least to get his attention, or to make it go well with me, I'll do what I have to do, but I don't like it, I'm not going to do my, my, the best job. If I were working for myself, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, there's, there's no way ahead for the little guy, et cetera, the big, big guy always gets out. No, you, you work not with eye service, not as men-pleasers. You work with integrity of heart. You fear the Lord, not the Lord, your, your earthly master. You fear Christ. You honor Him. As... You know, in some respects, we can say that this is talking about employees and employers because, to some degree, we exchange a certain measure of our freedom, our independence, our autonomy by saying, "I'll work for you, at, you know, these times of the day, these many days a, a week or a year or a month or a year, uh, I'll do it in exchange for this amount of money, these kind of benefits, uh, I'll do it with an anticipation this will be renewed, you know, at each successive term and so forth. I'll do it recognizing I'm not accomplishing my own vision or dreams or ambitions, but I'm accomplishing." your vision and dreams. And it's all good. We like that. Normally, that's how we all do things in this world. So what are you doing? How are you fulfilling that? Are you doing it with eye service, as men pleasers? Are you doing it with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord? Paul often likes to coin terms, not like uh, to to create terms. They like to put words together, make compound words. This word, I-service, is basically that. It takes the word for I and puts the word, takes the word service and puts them together and says this is I-service. And yet, what do you mean by that, Paul? What are you talking about here? Some have regarded it as a service that is performed only to make an impression in the owner's presence. Which is as I'm doing as long as that person's watching me. But after I'm going to sluff after he's he or she is gone, I'm going to slough off. I'm going to read my book. I'm going to uh, you know go and have some little me time. No, you do it not only to get their attention, not only to to prove that. Prove to them that you're doing what they required you to do, but you work with integrity of heart, as we'll look at in a moment. Don't do it to impress others. Don't do it to attract attention. You know, I, we're working fever. Look at this sweat on my brow. All this kind of, look at how hard I'm working. Don't draw attention to yourself. Just do your work. Just do what they've asked you to do. Don't do it just for outward compliance don't do it only when the master is watching. He says, don't be with eye service. And the motivation here is as men pleasers to have a a whole, the whole motive is that we would create a favorable impression upon the other person. What is our motive? What should our motive be? Do your work, fulfill your obligations, uh, accomplish what they've asked you to do. Don't do it for um, to be uh, obsequious, obsequious obedience—you know that is, a, uh, um, you know, kissing the ring or or, or just doing things to, to make the boss happy with you or to be pleased or to try to get promotions. No, you just do your work. If you are a, a galley slave, you know, the, on the, the bottom of a Roman ship, you do your where you pull that thing. You've you've seen you've seen the movie Ben Hur. Um, I was going to say Spartacus had the same master. Now that was Kirk. Cur- anyway, uh, Sp- Ben Hur talks about. A galley slave, and they pulled that thing and, and just do it, and then and now they go to war, and, and all this goes on there. You do it not by way of eye service, not by way of men pleasers. You do it because you're serving not this earthly master. That's just a, a, a placeholder, a proxy. You're serving Christ in the way that you manage that war, in the way that you teach or be a physician. As a slave, a slave physician, you serve Christ. Don't try to make things better for yourself. Don't try to uh, win favor with your boss. Although if that happens, don't shun it, but don't seek it. You seek to please Christ. You seek to serve him. You seek to make him uh, glorified. There's so many ways that, that we should not get the attention on ourselves. Maybe maybe there's just one way, and that is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, I think it is, where he says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The point there is, yes, you do your works. Yes, people are watching you. But the glory goes to God. Give the glory to God. Don't take it to yourself. What are you? What what do you have that you haven't been given? Your health, your strength, your your intellect, your relationships, your connections. It's all God's providence, all his kindness. You give glory to him. If you're going to get anybody's attention upon your work, make sure that you redirect it to the Lord. You are serving him. He says that we should be those who are acting with integrity of heart, or uh, and even this phrase, integrity of heart, has to do with a single-mindedness. We're serving, not this master over here, not this earthly master, we're serving Christ. We are devoted to Him. Do you know perhaps, and I didn't quantify this, so I don't know exactly how this goes, but probably the, well, A lot of times in scripture, service or slavery is not in relation to other people, it's in relation to God. Serving God, serving Him, being a slave of Christ. Paul, at the beginning of Colossians, as he does many of his letters, says, I am a slave of Christ, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And our identity ought to be, forget about what even if I'm a freed man, even if I have my independence, my autonomy. I am still a servant of Christ. I still am not my own person. I can't just live for my own uh, lusts and pleasures and desires or my own ambitions. I live as a servant of Christ himself. And if we regard that, regard Christ as our supreme master as our boss, then all this other stuff, whether we have a mean and nasty master or a very gracious and kind master like Philemon to Onesimus, uh, that we have a single minus, a devotion, a simplicity even in our minds. Uh, of our heart. We are wholeheartedly completely committed to Christ himself. We don't resort to being one person over here. Oh, the master's watching. We're going to be this sweet and and submissive and and, uh, successful kind of, oh, but he's not watching. We're going to go off and do this devious thing over here. You are serving the Lord Christ. Make sure that you are acting with integrity of heart, not just external, because we all can put on appearances. Don't do it for eye service. Don't do it to please men. You do it from the heart. Masters probably won't even pay attention to what's going on in your heart, but they can see, you know, the scripture says, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. There, there are implications of what goes on in our heart, and I, I focus here not because I'm talking about this, this organ, but because the inner person, the, the real you, what is the seed of your emotions, your volition, your, your affection, what, where are you heading? It's your heart. And he says, make sure at that level that you are acting with integrity, not because you fear or Firstly, not because you want the pleasure of your master and not because you fear the master, it's because you fear God. You fear the Lord, not just the the earthly master, the the, the one who is calling the shots. No, you fear the Lord, the one who is ruler over everything. You do what is honoring to him. Uh, One person said it this way, the motive for the slave's wholehearted, obedient service is not to be cringing servility before an earthly master, but reverential fear before the heavenly Lord. We have earthly masters. We have folks who, who say you can do this and, and go th- this far and no farther and, and different things. And yet Christ is the one overall. He is the Lord himself. How ought we conduct ourselves? Whether you're slaves uh, because of conquest or, you know, somebody brought you kicking and screaming to Kentucky. Maybe maybe they did. It, I don't know. Or you, are, uh, so you sold yourself. You've got debts to pay off and so you can do this. You serve the Lord. You serve him, fear him, recognize, and we'll see it in the next few verses, he's the one who rewards. Yeah, you can get some advancements, some promotions, maybe the little ease of whatever over here. But Christ is the one that we really ought to be concerned with. Christ is the one that we honor. He said that in relation to wives, in relation to husbands, children, and parents, uh, fathers. He said in relation to the Lord, you do all these things. Here, he does the very same thing. Slaves, you do your work in in such a way that you honor uh, Christ's identity and Christ's lordship over your life. That is our goal. We are servants of the Most High God that serve him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word from the uh, from the very difficult text even of slavery and how that has been so sorely uh, abused over the centuries and yet you have put restrictions upon it. You have put the context not just between masters and slaves but between the master the Lord Jesus and each one of us who serves not ourselves. We don't use our liberty to suit ourselves, but through love we serve one another. We're in a sense, we're slaves to one another. We, we are bound by an obligation to seek the interest of the other person. And that's love. Help us to act out of love thank you for your redemption even of this Hebrew slave girl back hundreds of years ago uh, to Naaman and his household and who brought a word I wish that my master would go and to see the prophet and and receive the healing from God help us to have that sweet submissive hopeful loving a disposition of heart a sincerity a devotion a simplicity of heart fearing you thank you for work Work is not evil. Work is not a curse. The complications of it is is difficult because of of the curse. And yet you told Adam in the garden, tend the garden, keep it, Uh, exercise dominion over all things. Work is not evil, but it has become a burden because of our sin and rebellion. Please help us to act out our new identity in Christ by being willing servants of you and to serve one another in love. We are thankful. In Christ's name, amen.